This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 375, December the 3rd, 1996. This evening, Andrew Sandlin cannot be with us. He's under the weather. But Douglas Murray, Mark Rushdoony, and I will discuss uh, one subject in particular. Before I get into the specifics of the subject, I'd like to review something I have dealt with in passing on other occasions. And I'm going to stop a moment after I do for comments and then get down to the specifics and we'll stop periodically. But one of the things that marked the early church was that long before it was capable or legally able of owning a church building, that is, a place of worship, it was a powerful social force in the Roman Empire. We find that Paul very early tells them not to go to court to unbelievers, to set up their own courts of arbitration, 1 Corinthians 6, and to settle matters, which they did. And after a while, their courts were so well known for their justice that non-Christians were coming to them. After the fall of Rome, for six centuries, they were the only courts of Europe. They set up hospitals and took care of the sick. Hospitals then and for centuries well into the Reformation period, as for example in Calvin's Geneva, were not only places for the sick, but they were old folks' homes, they were orphanages, and they were what we would call hotels, so that people were able to stay in the Christian uh, hospital when they were passing through. We know that this was a necessity. In the book of Acts, we read how St. Paul, when he came to a place, a new place, went to the synagogue and waited for someone to invite him. You could not go to a hotel. The difference uh, between a hotel and a house of prostitution was impossible to define. And if you got a room, you got a girl with it. Now, they created these hospitals. They created Christian schools. They rescued the babies that were abandoned at birth and passed them around to church members. They ransomed people who were taken into captivity by the Mediterranean pirates. There was scarcely a social need that the early church did not meet. And it created institutions to take care of uh, various needs. It created a library in the church. In other words, the early church was exactly what Rome felt it was and what Rome 
resented an imperium in imperio, an empire within the empire, a government under Christ that was taking over the role of governing in one sphere after another, in the sphere of health, education, and welfare. Well, on top of that, there was its court system, so it was also a ministry of justice. Now, every time the church has been strong in its 20 centuries of history, it has resumed these obligations. We have seen a great revival since World War II within the area of education, Christian schools and homeschoolings. And we are seeing the church enter other areas. So that uh, we are in the early stages of a major Christian Reformation. Now, this of course meets with resistance from the state and it is resented by those who want to see the state offer the way of salvation, which the state has done from antiquity. The Roman emperors hailed themselves as saviors on their coinage and in their proclamations so that uh, they resented another agency taking over and doing it more effectively and much, much more cheaply. Well, every time, as I indicated, that the church has had a revival, it has gone back into these spheres, not dropping the necessity of proclaiming salvation, but as an aspect of its gospel of salvation. The whole man, body and soul, is to be the object of redemption. Now what the early church did was not unusual from the standpoint of Israel and Judaism. What it was doing was simply applying God's law, extending it to a degree in that it was now not only the people in their community, but all people everywhere. And this missionary zeal of the church has shown itself in medical missions, in charitable missions, in all kinds of institutions that have been created all over the world by Christians. So that we have to see this as basic to the gospel. Certainly, both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation so made it. Calvin in particular on the Protestant side with what he did in Geneva and what the Reformed community did elsewhere. And St. Charles Borromeo in the Catholic community. Now, one of the problems has been
And after making this statement, I'm going to stop for a moment so that you two can comment if you would like to or ask questions. The office of deacon over the centuries has been, according to Dean Stanley of the Church of England, a hundred years, maybe a hundred and fifty years ago, said, the most important single office in the history of the church. It was the office in charge of this diverse ministry, and now it's virtually neglected, and the deacons do very little in this kind of outreach, so that uh, it is important for the church to revive the meaning of that office and its total ministry. Well, are there any questions or comments or anything either of you would like to say now? Douglas, Mark? Well, the first thing that comes to mind to me is the motivation between government and the church of providing health education and welfare. History has proven conclusively that government is not capable over the long run to provide health education and welfare because their motivation is not uh, Christian love or genuine charity. Uh, it's not sustainable. Uh, in government, there's only the desire to enslave, to control, uh, with the simple end result of individuals exercising power over others, and that never lasts. And yes. you know, over the past 2,000 years, it's proven itself so many times that it's indisputable at this point. Rome is the classic and great example of what happened when they took over uh, charity. Welfareism helped destroy Rome. Of course, the tithe is necessary in order for the diaconate or for the church in general to exercise the functions that government is now functioning. We've given up the tithe because and let government take over the uh, the taxation of our um, for for these purposes. So we're paying a tax to the state rather than a tithe to the church. Yes, but it's interesting that even today, with the taxation, with uh, the faltering economy with the difficult jobs and people working multiple jobs, most of the charity comes from the people with the least means. So with the right motivation, mm -hmm. uh, it's still possible. If, if government were to, were to abandon the field, if it were to fail, then I think that there would be a natural upwelling of uh, charitable support for the church's institutions, but government uh, will not voluntarily do this. It will either fall of its own weight, mm -hmm. as most governments do, because they refuse to admit that they're incapable of providing these services on a long-term sustainable basis. Um, and uh, the, <laughs> the, the triumph of, of wisdom just isn't there. Uh, they only learn by uh, bitter uh, experience. It's, it's like with a, a business enterprise has, finds it difficult to compete with the government because the government has an endless supply of uh, funding and they don't have to do things efficiently. And so it's very difficult for business. Businesses don't want to try to com compete with them. It's the same way in charities. When government taxes people, has an endless supply of, of income that they spread money around carelessly, people grab 
who need help often gravitate towards the government and the the churches, private agencies who are trying to use money efficiently um, basically get, get left in a lurch. It's difficult to compete in anything with the government. Well, well, the, ba yes. the basic argument is who's going to exercise power? Right. Uh, government is unwilling to give up the power, uh, yet they are incapable of admitting that they have the uh, either the expertise, uh, at the very least, or the long-term means, sustainable over a long, long period of time, to be able to fund it. You can only tax the people so far uh, to the point where I think historically you said that when taxation gets over, historically when the government taxes over 50 percent, there's a change in the government, either violently or, or some other way, or the government simply falls of its own weight because it cannot, people simply will not uh, give up everything that they, uh, that they produce. Uh, the Russians couldn't do it. Uh, there hasn't been any, mm -hmm. any system uh, other than the church that can pro provide a long-term, sustainable uh, health, education, and welfare system simply because uh, the motivation. And yet, it's over 2,000 years, with the, with the uh, example that you've just cited of the Roman Empire, we think that we're going to do better than they mm -hmm. did, which is the height of arrogance. Well, to continue now, an amazing thing happened in the second half of the last century. At that time, most of Christendom was drifting away from the faith. As a matter of fact, in intellectual circles, there was a tacit abandonment of the faith, although Outwardly, they maintained uh, some ties with it. It was held after the uh, publication of Darwin's Origin of Species that uh, the Bible was exploded, that man now was free from Christianity. The ironic fact is that if you go back to Darwin's two books, what you find is that it's all theory. There's no data, there's no uh, evidence cited. It's a theoretical book. And yet, as George Bernard Shaw said, on the publication of Darwin's book, the world leaped at it because it was their answer, how to get rid of God. I prefer to characterize it as the big lie technique dressed up as fact. Yes. Well, a book that was dull reading, and I struggled through it when I was young. It's very dull. It was, I think, in two days that the entire first edition was bought out. The reason, of course, being people were so glad to be delivered from the God hypothesis. Well, an interesting uh, development took place. Matthew Arnold, of course, is a key figure in it, but it goes back uh, 
much, much before Matthew Arnold in its basic tenets. Matthew Arnold was ready to give up theology, ready to give up religion, but he felt the moral truths of Christianity were eternal. They were written into the very framework of nature. So morality was going to be substituted for religion. But before the uh, Victorian era was over, morality was dead, and the decay was far, far-reaching. And of course now we are routinely told that there is no objective, eternal, uh, valid morality. It, everyone should pick up and choose their own values, and the term value is referred to morality. So it's a do-it-yourself, for-yourself kind of thing, and the result is the growing moral anarchy so that we are, as one writer has called it, slouching towards Gomorrah. Now, one man did something remarkable in the face of all that. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. He was a preacher. He went to London to speak. He saw the conditions in the slums of London. One small group of French Huguenots were working in the slums, and he was impressed by what he saw. He developed a gospel for the down-and-outers. Now, Booth, when it came to theology, was at the other end from what we believe. He was definitely not Reformed in spite of the inspiration he derived from the Huguenots. He was basically a Wesleyan holiness preacher. He did not believe in the uh, necessity of the sacraments, although he was tolerant if some of the Salvation Army people wanted to go to the Church of England or the Methodist Church for their sacraments. He believed in women preachers. He was ready to use anything and everything to uh, further the preaching to the poor. In the early years, they began with street preaching, and in my lifetime, I can recall when uh, street preaching by the Salvation Army was still practiced. I remember. Just yes. Uh, beginning of World War II in San Francisco on Market Street. Yes. And uh, they had a band. The Salvation Army members mm -hmm. were part of the band. Mm -hmm. And while you rarely hear anything about it, their bands were good. Mm -hmm. They stressed excellence because General William Booth would tolerate nothing less. And it is interesting that uh, George Bernard Shaw, who began life as a music critic and uh, became a famous dramatist, wrote uh, an account of Salvation Army bands. And he had, as a music critic, reviewed some uh, internationally famous bands. 
and he felt the Salvation Army was in all ways better, highly professional. Now, he may not have cared for their choice of music, but he felt they were remarkably professional. Well, that was characteristic of General William Booth. Nothing second-rate. Everything had to be first-rate in quality. Well, it was not easy in those days to preach in the streets. First of all, it quickly became apparent worldwide and the army in Booth's lifetime spread to every continent all around the world, that these people were converting so many drunks they were hurting the bars. And so uh, hoodlums were hired to beat up on the Salvation Army people, and more than a few in England and around the world were killed, literally killed. But Booth trained the soldiers well. You went through a rigorous course of training. You were a highly disciplined person. And you learned how when people were throwing rocks at you or shouting insults at you to return their abuse with kindly good humor, to disarm them, as it were, and to turn the crowd from being against you to being against any who were trying to do you harm. He was a remarkable man in the training he gave to his people. Now, one of the things that helped Booth greatly was this transition from theology to morality. And a great many people in the upper class, nobility, and royalty all over the world felt that Booth represented something wonderful. Of course, they couldn't agree with his theology. They couldn't agree with that rather crude type of preaching. But this man is important in bringing about a moral change in the lower classes. Wonderful. So, despite some who opposed him on high levels, very early he had the approval of royalty in one country after another, intellectuals and important peoples. This did not make it easier always, but very often such people interceded to prevent the police from uh, siding with a mob against the Salvation Army people. So they because of this historical situation whereby the upper crust was all for morality as their new religion, and General Booth was creating a moral reformation among the down and outers. People with dozens and dozens of arrests and convictions on the record suddenly becoming marvelous Christians, thoroughly moral people. That had its impact. So 
they were ready to side with the Salvation Army and to be helpful. And it is interesting that uh, sometimes people on the very high levels through uh, the 30s up to World War II were most appreciative of uh, General Booth. I have here a set I prized. I got it years and years ago when I was a student. And at that time, I didn't mark up books, so it's a lot in it. I wish I could recall where and what page it was. But at any rate, it was published, I believe, in 1935. Yes, by Macmillan. The author was St. John Irvine, a prominent British writer, and the title, God's Soldier, General William Booth. The set was published at $15, and I got the two volumes marked down because it was in a university atmosphere and the interest in this was not very great. I got the two volumes for $1.98, and I've prized them ever since. Here is a remarkable man, a novelist, a dramatist, a writer of note, who wrote a most appreciative work on the significance of General Booth. Then there's another book I'd like to refer anyone who's interested in pursuing this subject to, a, Booth by, a book by General Booth. My copy was published, not the first printing, in 1890. It is still available. The title, In Darkest England, and the way out, a takeoff on Stanley's uh, book title when he went in search of uh, Livingston in Darkest Africa. This is a remarkable book. Booth describes the condition in the slums of boys who before they're of school age have been taught to be expert pickpockets of girls who succeed their mother in the work of being prostitutes and can't remember when they lost their virginity. And his question is this, it's well and good to try to convert these people, but when they're converted, what do you do with them? Do you turn them loose? They don't know how to make an honest living. So, in this book, Booth laid out a program to uh, train these people in special training centers. These were to be out in the country. They were to be converted, dried out if they were alcoholics, taught the faith, then taught a gainful employment. It was a job core training. This was a major thrust of Booth's work, but we hear too little about it. It's still being done. Now, one of the common criticisms 
of the Salvation Army that I hear as I go around the country, if I mention them, is that they receive federal funds. They do. But we must remember they have received state funds from the earliest days of their history. Not because they've gone after them, but because this or that country around the world has come to them and said, you can do things with these people that we cannot do. Hopeless criminals, hoodlums, prostitutes, alcoholics. If we provide you with a funding, will you take over and cleanse our cities of this terrible problem? And that's what they've done. In fact, one or a couple of countries, I believe New Zealand and Australia, have provided them with islands offshore of their countries where they can take these people and train them so that the Salvation Army has not been like various religious groups that have gone after federal funding. Various countries have come to them and said, you are taking a problem, care of problems where we have failed. Will you do this? This has been done by these countries for more than a hundred years. One non-Christian writer has said of the Salvation Army that they do more for the poor in New York City than the federal government. Uh, let me add at this time the reason why uh, General William Booth called himself a general and the organization and army was that he very quickly realized that to do the kind of work he was going to require of them, a tough discipline was required. And so he modeled his group, his church, you might call it, after an army. It is a highly disciplined group. You obey, you do what you're told, you live extremely modestly, your marriage partner has to be approved. At every point you are controlled, but the control has one purpose, to make the army more effective. Booth himself, although the head of this organization, that owned vast properties all over the world, lived very modestly, so that uh, when he died, he was in reality a poor man. So it was the Salvation Army and from the local group all the way on up, they are officers, they are soldiers because they are in a war for Christ against sin and against degradation caused by sin. I think it would be interesting if uh, we could uh, accumulate the success stories from countries like uh, New Zealand and Australia and other countries that have opened their doors to the Salvation Army where they have given the money in order to administrate these health education welfare programs on the government's behalf and been successful. Uh, 
and uh, make this information available to our own government mm -hmm. because they seem to have run out of ideas. Well, I think they're aware of it. The general public is not. Uh, the uh, information is there, but people are really indifferent to it. I know that when I've tried to de describe this diaconal ministry and the work of the Salvation Army, I don't get much interest from uh, church people by and large. Uh, incidentally, uh, in darkest England and the way out is still in print. And it's a marvelous book to read. I think one of the reasons people are afraid of private, any private organization having too much authority, including the church, is because with with authority and power, even if it's in the power of administering charity, there there comes authority and uh, influence. And a lot of people would rather not have the influence of the church, just like they don't want the influence of um, maybe a, a large company. When when you look at government, government gives and and but government takes from people who have. The people who are receiving things from the government really aren't contributing that much to the government. So it's all good and all benefit to them and no sacrifice to them. And the people who are gaining government aid aren't particularly inclined to, to want any organization which would then have some influence over their lives, such as a church or charitable organization. So the reason I think a lot of people are afraid of the church taking over more charitable roles is because they like the idea of getting something with nothing expected in return. I think, you know, for openers, all you have to do is compare the take, the bite, the mordida. Uh, our government is taking, uh, at the very least, I mean, they're admitting to taking something like 37 to 38 percent, and uh, more accurate estimates, I believe, are up closer to 48 and a half percent. And uh, the church asks, you know, 10 percent. So people's self-interest, I would think, would motivate them to turn away from government because government is obviously inefficient. They can't get the job done even though they take <clears throat> almost four times the amount of wealth from the people. I mean, how smart do you have to be? Well, the government's not interested in changing things, obviously, because it means power to them. Well, there's a brokerage fee. They get their take. They get their million-dollar pensions, and they get their take. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the average guy in the street has got enough street sense to figure out that if he can get the same job done for uh, mm -hmm. a quarter of the uh, amount, then his taxes are going to go down. He doesn't have to worry about the budget being balanced and all the rest of it. I think government doesn't want to give up their, what we call it, charity. I think the way it's going to come back is when Christian and private groups find areas where there isn't a government program, the people who have fallen through the cracks, the people where places where government aid doesn't work, it's failed. And it's going to have to be built up in these areas, like Booth took the people who were down and out that nobody was really doing anything with. And he did something with them, and he created a force um, 
he wasn't trying to take over what someone else was doing. And I think Christians have to look in areas where people are falling through the cracks, and there are a lot of people falling through the cracks. Well, One major area today where a lot of people are falling through the cracks is a lot of men who walk out on their on their families. These people are not in good shape. It only takes a few months. They're losing their homes. State aid only provides so much. There's a tremendous amount of people who are really need some help. The Mormons have taken a great advantage of this, and one of the greatest ways Mormons have found to convert people is they go in and they help these people. They help single parent households. They say, you need some furniture, we'll get you some furniture. You need groceries, we'll get you groceries. Whatever you need, let us know. And they've got church members, and many of them later, as they get on their feet, are very enthusiastic. They don't care what the theology of the Mormon church is. But they were drawn to someone who would give them real help and, and not just token pat on the back and we sympathize with you. So I, I think the church is going to have to get into areas like this and they're going to find areas where, where people aren't being helped. Well, how do you get around the situation where, we, as we've seen, for instance, down in Stockton, uh, there was a soup kitchen down there that tried to open up to feed people who were homeless, uh, obviously hurting in wintertime, and the government, because they don't want any uh, competition, uh, even if they don't offer an alternative, stepped in and closed the place down. I mean, this has been happening pretty consistent lately, which indicates to me the government's starting to get nervous that, hey, this might just work. Well, a lot of the Salvation Army people went to jail in the early years and a long time thereafter. Rather than to surrender their freedom to work with people, to preach in the open air, and uh, to have their bands, everything else was going on. There was no law against doing good on the streets. So it took some uh, readiness to fight City Hall, as it were, before they finally were able to have the uh, uh, vindication in the courts, or sometimes from outside the courts, when prominent uh, public officials in high places made known their disapproval, and the local police and courts pulled in their horns. Recently, I concluded reading a five-volume history of the Salvation Army. Uh, four of the five volumes deal with their work the world over, where they went, what they did, and so on. But the third volume by Robert Sandall is titled, subtitled Social Reform and Welfare Work. Very early, they began to work in prisons because there they would have the people uh, stationary for a time and could reach them. They had rescue homes for women, especially uh, prostitutes. They had work among children they had also uh, food and shelter. They established all kinds of uh, 
missions where they would house people, started work for the unemployed, and they had a traveling hospital going around, taking care of things, uh, worked to, of course, convert the drunks, preventive homes they created, inquiries for lost people. There was scarcely a social service they weren't meeting. Refuges for children, industrial schools, places for the uh, insane. They created uh, hotels for travelers, salesmen and the like. They provided uh, legal help for poor people so that uh, what uh, Washington has done to provide its legal services, which are for the left, is really an imitation of what the Salvation Army did for a long time and far more ably. They had hostels for young women, leper settlements, homes for the blind, homes for the elderly, anti-suicide bureaus, they actually went to Devil's Island when it shut down to work among the people there and help rehabilitate them. Some of them brought back to this country, or rather to France, their homeland. They had uh, every kind of service, including schooling for parents, teaching them how to be godly parents. So you can see how far-reaching their activities were, and they still are. They haven't surrendered any of these things, so that somewhere in the world today, one or another of these services are routinely provided for countless numbers of people. And the impact in Africa, Asia, the Pacific Islands, all over the world, is quite dramatic. So we have in the Salvation Army a remarkable work. It should lead the churches to wake up because this is the calling of the church. The church recognized when uh, the Salvation Army began that uh, they were doing their work. The Church of England at one time, through a couple of bishops, said, will you be ready to join with us, be a part of the Church of England? And Booth's reaction was, I appreciate your offer, no. We want the freedom to be independent, not to be caught up in church politics. The Methodists made a like offer with a like reaction from Booth. Booth, right up to old age, traveled all over the world. I believe he was between 80 and 83, as I recall it, when he died. And at the time, it was a front page story all over the country. But uh, even when blind, he continued, did an amazing work. It's no wonder that the Salvation Army has been so effective because 
it has commanded the same kind of devotion from all its members, high and low. Some years ago, oh, 45 years ago about, I began to uh, work with one Salvation Army captain, a young slender woman. I gave modestly, and I still give a little bit every year to the Salvation Army, but what I did was to refer people to her because I would be called upon by people who were poor or who were drunk or who were in deep trouble for help, and I didn't feel I had the competence to judge whether or not their story was a true one or not. But I found that when I referred them to the Salvation Army, they could quickly tell me uh, what uh, the truth was in the story. They had uh, experience in dealing with uh, such peoples. They could spot the lie very quickly, and they had ways that I never asked about of checking very quickly on a person. So they were most efficient in taking care of the person or spotting the phonies who thought they might find a, a weak-minded pastor who would uh, slip them a five or a ten or help them out with some uh, kind of foodstuff or the like. And the number of uh, cheats I quickly learned who go around to all kinds of agencies is legion. After a while, I uh, had a way of spotting them. I would ask them when they came to me, have you been to the Salvation Army? They are the best agency to help you. And they would very often blow up or just uh, walk out and leave which meant they knew that they would be spotted as a phony. But the Salvation Army has had a remarkable record of effectiveness. They're still hard at work more than ever, for example, in their homes for uh, mothers who are pregnant out of wedlock. Their work among alcoholics is very, very significant still. The Salvation Army is effective because it concentrates on one thing, its effort to reach the down and outers for Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned the uh, points where theologically I would not agree with them. They will not enter into discussion on this as a matter of principle. They're not there for disputation. They'll leave that to the theologians. They are there to help people who are in need. And they're very good at that, and they concentrate on what they do best. So that uh, this 
marks the Salvation Army uh, its concentration on being effective. I think it's significant that they've been able to maintain a dedicated command structure that has not become corrupted. You take a look at all of these various charities uh, and their scandals arise that are broadcast in the paper about uh, uh, major figures in the organization either embezzling large sums of money yes. or, or uh, paying themselves an enormous salary. I think in Salvation Army they all pay the same, don't they? Yeah. They are very, very careful about every dollar. Yeah. And the result is that it's a lean, tight organization. One of the things that marks them, too, and here General Booth was wise, by not hooking up with any church, they have been able to change very quickly. Churches tend to get hardening of the arteries. What worked a hundred years ago is supposed to work now. But methodology has to change. The faith remains. And Booth uh, kept in touch with the times. He was one of the first to use the motor car. And he traveled all over England and all over one country after another in a motor car. Interesting, too, he, even though in his day some closed sedans were coming in, insisted on touring cars. So he could see things better and people could see him. He didn't want anything between himself and the people. So. The Salvation Army has been flexible. It has changed its strategy. I'm sure some parts of the world, they still use the bands and the street preaching. But in many places, they've given way to other strategies. And they've done so because their purpose is to be effective. And being effective means keeping in touch with the times and what is effective. Too many groups try to retain something that worked 50 and 100 years ago and they become irrelevant as a result. But the Salvation Army has never lost its relevance because it's always ready to revise its strategy. One of the things that has happened, of course, is that uh, the upper levels of the organization have become more and more anonymous. Uh, Booth was such a dramatic figure, a tall, white-bearded man with a long, flowing white beard. His son, Bramwell, was a commanding person, as was his daughter. His wife, who preceded him by some years, Booth's wife, was also quite a strong-willed and commanding woman. So that as long as the Booths were in charge in the early years, almost 
the first century. The uh, Booth image was very much there, but Booth image or not, even then they functioned as an organization with a great deal of discipline and order and a readiness on the part of all to subordinate themselves to the welfare of the work they were doing, to the cause. It's very hard to do in an organization. Yes, very hard to do. I've heard there was a motto down in the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, this particular organization was the uh, uh, amateur flyers that went out and looked for people who were lost and uh, you know private planes and they had radio communications between them and so forth. The motto of this organization was that um, there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Mm -hmm. and, Good. Uh, you know they're, they didn't want anybody to you know get up in front of the press and beat their chest they just you know wanted to do the job and move on. Well, I trust all of you will see the Salvation Army with new respect and that you will be ready to support it because the work it does is a great work. And we as uh, churches need to think what can we do where we are? Whom can we help? What is there that needs attention locally? Or if not, help someone somewhere else in the world who's doing remarkable things. And of course, we through Cal Seton are helping a number of causes around the world and are financing them because we believe this kind of ministry must be advanced. The church needs to return to this. We have tried to take a lead in some spheres, particularly Christian education, Christian school and homeschool. And we are working with men who are at work elsewhere in the world, in Africa and other places, to help them to carry on the mission of the church, which is in every sphere of life to demonstrate that we have the answer, that the only real government is that which comes out of a Christian faith. Well, our time is nearly up. Are there any closing remarks either of you men would like to make? Well, I think we should make a point of saying what I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with. There's been a real push in recent years that in around shopping malls that a lot of retailers don't like the Salvation Army bell ringers around because they say it makes it, it doesn't give people the right impression when they're out there looking for donations and charity and people feel constrained upon perhaps to give. They don't want their customers to feel the pressure of being asked to give. Uh, and it sounds like strange logic at you know Christmas time but there's been a real push now amongst some malls to, to try to kick out the Salvation Army bell ringers yes, altogether. And that's terrible. one of the major sources of funding for their programs yes. throughout the year. Yes, 
I know of one uh, officer, a very able man, who would bring in as much as 2,500 some years back from his uh, Christmas time uh, bell ringing in a shopping area. So you can see how important it is to them. Well, I think that the, the way to turn that around is uh, for people to take their business to stores that encourage the Salvation Army bell ringers to be out in front of their establishment. Uh, I don't think it would take very long before some of the other storekeepers would change their minds. I think that's a good idea. We're doing everything today to exclude Christ and Christian causes from Christmas. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.